Good morning. Merry Christmas. I apologize for how I sound, but God is good, right? If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2. And it was just reading from Luke chapter 2. And we're going to look at this story that uh, I believe uh, captures the story of Christmas. It's often the most read passage during the Christmas season. Luke chapter 2. And I want to preach this morning on God's mercy and our joy in the birth of Christ. God's mercy and our joy in the birth of Christ. Luke chapter 2. Let's pray together. Father, this morning I pray that in my weakness you will demonstrate your strength. And that the power of the gospel would go forth and create great joy in your people. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a danger when we read Luke chapter 2 at Christmas time. And the danger is that we're familiar with it. Sometimes it's hard to prepare a sermon over a passage that you read all the time because you're familiar with it and you assume, well, I already, I already know this. So I thought it'd be a little fun this morning if we took a little quiz to see how familiar we are with the Christmas story. Um, sometimes I think we know what it says, but we may not all know what all it means. So here's a little true-false quiz for you. Got the children in here today so they can play along too. Uh, but here's some questions, true or false. True or false. There are no records of Joseph speaking in the Christmas story. Y'all are like, I, I don't know. <laughs> true. True. I'm sure Joseph said something at some point, but there's absolutely no record of him speaking at all. By the way, you can call these out if you want to, like Luther said. Sin boldly, right? You can be wrong boldly. It's okay. Uh, next. The wise men were three kings from the Orient. That's false. Very good. The number of wise men is not mentioned, and they were not kings. The star appeared above the manger. False. I know, I just crushed all of your nativity sets at home. No, false. The the star actually appeared above the house where Joseph's family was living in Matthew chapter 2. Next. The angel Gabriel appeared to Mary first, and then he appeared to Joseph. That's false. Actually, it's a trick question. Sorry, Mary was the first one to see the angel, but we don't know the name of the angel who appeared to Joseph. For all we know, it his name might have been Harold, right? Hark, the Herald angel sings. We don't know. Here's another one. Oh, by the way, here's, a, here's one. Speaking of Hark, the Herald angel sings. An angelic choir of angels sang to celebrate Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. I'm, y'all are questioning everything about your Christianity right now. False. Do you know the Bible doesn't say anything about the angels singing? It says they praised God and that they said glory to God in the highest. But it doesn't actually say that they sang. Now they might have sang. I'm not saying they didn't sing. Just, just saying it doesn't actually say that they sang. Here it is. Uh, Mary rode a donkey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. 
false. A donkey does not appear anywhere in the biblical account. She probably walked. I would just ask a heavily pregnant woman if she wants to ride a donkey for 100 miles, right? Now, she might have. I'm not saying she didn't. I'm just saying the text doesn't say that she did. Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem because of a decree by Caesar Augustus. True. Yep. Got it. We're going to read that in just a minute. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Three or four more. But the wise men did not arrive on the night of Jesus' birth. Oh, y'all, now we're, now we're positive, right? True. I know that one. Yes, true. The wise men arrived probably after Jesus was born at some point when he was around two years old. Uh, this is, should be an easy one. God sent a choir of chubby angels to announce Jesus' birth to the shepherds. False. Actually, God sent an army of warrior angels, right? When we see, hear the words company and heavenly host, those are military terms. It wasn't just a worship service. This is a war chant, right? Glory to God in the highest. Two more. When Herod heard about Jesus, he was the only one concerned about this new king. It's false. Matthew chapter 2 says that all of Jerusalem was disturbed by the news of a new king. And last one. There were animals by the manger. False. The only animals mentioned are the sheep out in the field. Not saying there were Animals, not saying you need to go throw your nativity set in the garbage. Just saying the text does not say that there were cattle lowing and all of those other good things. So now that I've ruined Christmas for some of you, my prayer today is that God would rescue us from what we perceive to be over familiarity and God give us a fresh view of the gospel. Uh, I know that, that was a little fun, but I think sometimes we do get so familiar with the story that we forget what it's actually telling us. So let's look at Luke chapter 2. I'm going to start reading the uh, first seven verses. In this first section, I want us to see the historical reality of the Christmas story. This is true history. And Luke gives us these historical details. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was one of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. When we think about the historical reality of Christmas, I think the big picture I want, you, I want us to see this morning is how God is working all of human history for his purposes. We see here, I think if you're reading the Old Testament, I was thinking about this this week. If you read through the Old Testament and you start reading through the prophets, most of the prophets start by telling you who was the king. When, when those prophets are prophesying, right? So when you read Isaiah, he'll say things like, uh, Prophet Isaiah in the days of Hezekiah the king, in the days when Uzziah was king, in the, key, in the days of Josiah the king. And all of these prophets are prophesying about Jewish kings sitting on the throne. Until you get to Matthew, and there's this piercing verse in the days when Herod was king. There's not a Jewish king on the throne anymore. The Babylonians have taken 
them into captivity. And over the course of human history, through the Greek Empire, and now the Roman Empire, Rome is on the throne. A Roman emperor, Caesar, is in control. And it's at this point in human history when God intervenes and sends a savior. Not when there's a Jewish king on the throne. I think it's important for us to see what what Galatians talks about. That in the fullness of time, God sent his son. It was in the time when there was a common language, a Greek language, when the scriptures could be written and and mass produced. And and the majority of people in that world at the time would know Greek and be able to read the scriptures and understand it. There was a common language. There were common roads through the Roman Empire. They had paved roads so that that people could travel easily to and fro. And so once the gospel began to be preached, it would be able to, to be dispersed and would be able to go. All of these things working through human history. Even... A, a, a ruler named Caesar Augustus who wants his people to be registered. Now, he's doing this for selfish reasons. He does this so he can count how many people are in the kingdom in case I need to go to war. That's the first reason. And how many people are in the kingdom so that I can tax them to get more money. I mean, these are, these are selfish reasons for this king to have a census. I need to know how many people can fight and how many people I can tax. But it's through these selfish ambitions of this, this Caesar that he has, he puts forth this decree, a census, that forces Mary and Joseph to go back to their hometown, which is in Bethlehem, which fulfills a prophecy in Micah that the Savior, the Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. They are not living in Bethlehem. They are a hundred miles from Bethlehem. And so God uses even the decree of a Roman emperor to bring This little family to Bethlehem so that the Savior would be born. God is working all of human history together to save his people. He did it in the days of Abraham. He did it in the days of Joseph. He did it in the days of Moses. He did it in the days of the prophets. And he's doing it now in this text. And he is doing it today. He is working all things together for our good and for his glory. He is conforming us into the image of Christ, his son. And so I want you to see that this is historical reality. Luke gives details because this really happened. There are people that would deny that Jesus was born, that Jesus even existed. And Luke is telling us this is historical reality and that God is working even in the details of history to bring about a savior for us. And now we're told that Mary is great with uh, child. She's pregnant. She's ready to have a baby. Now, any of you women who have been at that point, ready to give birth, the last thing that you want is a hundred mile walk across the wilderness, maybe on the back of a donkey, to give birth to God, perhaps by the side of the road with no doctor or medical case on your own. That's a terrifying prospect, right? No pressure. You're going to give birth to God You have a hundred mile walk. Good luck. But God in his providential sovereignty. Those are big words. That means God's in control. Needs to get this couple from Nazareth to Bethlehem. To fulfill the prophecy and the promise of scripture. That he would be born in Bethlehem. So these are the characters. You have Caesar, Augustus, Quirinius, Joseph and Mary. Jesus Christ. And behind all of this is God at work. And it reveals to us. That God is ruling over Nations, not just families, 
but nations, kings and kingdoms, and that God is above all and that he is Lord. And so now let's move now into this. Let's focus in on this family and the birth of Christ himself in verse 8. And the big thing that I want you to see in this section is that in the kingdom of God, humility must come before glory. Right? Let that sink in. Humility must come before glory. Look at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Humility comes before glory. This is the case for Jesus and it is the case for us that night. I want you to think about this. The God of the universe was laid in an animal's feeding trough. There is no glory in that. No, before there will be glory, there must be humility. Listen to what the scripture says about this. It's true for Jesus and it's true for us. James 4 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The first will be last. And the last will be first. Humble yourselves before the Lord and in due time he will exalt you. You see, in the kingdom of God, first comes humility and then glory. And we see this modeled for us from the Savior's birth. And when I think, when I read this passage, this should immediately confront our pride. Because we in America, we are glory seekers. Oh, we want the followers, we want the attention, we want to be known, we want the praise of men. We crave glory from other people. We long to be recognized. And we don't just long for it for ourselves, but we long for it for our children. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan, wrote this about this text. He said, God well knew how unwilling we are to be meanly lodged, clothed, or fed. How we desire to have our children decorated and indulged. How apt the poor are to envy the rich. And how prone the rich are to disdain the poor. But when we by faith view the Son of God being made man and lying in a manger. Our vanity, ambition and envy are put in check. We cannot, with this object rightly before us, seek great things for ourselves or our children. We know as well from Luke's words that another unidentified angel shows up in the field to announce the birth to the shepherds. They were unlikely candidates to be chosen to be the first people entrusted with the gospel. Surely... God would have gone to the Pharisees, people who were educated, people who knew the Bible, people who uh, could be entrusted with the message. But he goes to shepherds. 
Right? If you ever played one of the shepherds in the church play around Christmas, you got the worst part, right? These, these people were weird. They lived by themselves outside of town, sleeping in the open with animals all the time. That's not the job you shoot for. Right? That's the job you end up with. Okay? They're, they're, they're shepherds. But we do not see the glory of this passage until we learn what the shepherds learn. They're out at night keeping watch over their flock. This is not glorious work. Right? They're working the night shift. Shepherds had bad reputations. They were a despised class of people. And by virtue of their work, many times they were not even allowed into the temple because they were considered unclean. But isn't that just how God arrives? He comes in a humble way. To humble shepherds, to a humble Mary. It's amazing. God takes the lowly, these people and things that are looked down upon in the world, and he works with them for his glory by his grace. Think about this. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd boy when he slew the giant Goliath. Amos, the prophet, said, God, why do you want me to preach? I'm just a shepherd. Even Jesus comes as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. In John 10 and 1 Peter 5, he is the chief shepherd and senior pastor of the church. And so God redeems even this really unpopular, insignificant profession and shows that he is humble. He's willing to look after us sheep, which are not the most brilliant of animals. We are altogether defenseless, right? Think about this. No one's ever been scared of a sheep. They're like a walking pillow. And that's what the Bible says about us. We're defenseless, silly, wandering, not real sharp. Now, some of you would say, well, I, I'm very smart and very proficient and highly educated. Well, yeah, for a sheep. But that's not a big deal, right? We're sheep. And just like a shepherd tends to his sheep. The shepherd's devoted to his sheep. And the shepherd is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. And so Jesus comes as the good shepherd. And this announcement is made to other shepherds that Jesus has in fact come. That God has become man. And I don't know this for sure, but I think it's possible that these shepherds were raising sheep to be sacrificed at the temple for sin. They may have been working among those sheep. These sheep that eventually would no longer be necessary because a lamb had been born in Bethlehem. A lamb who would take away the sins of the world. But on that night we're told an angel of the Lord stood before them. This brightness of the glory shines in the night. The dark night runs away from the shining light of God's glory. And these shepherds are filled with fear. Awe and reverence grip their hearts. And to, here's what blows my mind. To these lowly men God gives the highest theology. These despised shepherds are the first to receive the announcement of the gospel. These men are the first to learn of great joy for all the people. They understand that the gospel is not just for Israel, but it is for all nations. That all may have this joy. And it's not just any joy. It's good news of great joy. Charles Spurgeon spoke about this great joy and he said he spoke about how it was a different joy than anything that the world could offer. And yet a great many Christians were known more for their joy in worldly things more than their great joy in Christ. 
Spurgeon would say things like, there are some of you that if someone were to speak of you today, they would say, oh yes, I'm, I'm sure that he's a Christian. But if you really want him to get passionate, let him talk about football. Or let him talk about the Avengers. Oh, I'm, I'm sure she's, she's a Christian. I'm, I'm sure she goes to church and she believes those things. But if you really want her to get excited, let, let her talk about Chip and Joanna Gaines. And he says, what the problem is, is that, that, that we have a joy that in this world, that yes, there are things in this world that may bring joy to us, but it is nothing compared to the great joy of Christ. And he asked, what are you known for? And as we as Christians, I have to ask the, ask the question, are you mostly known for your great joy in Jesus? Yes, you may be passionate about other things. And yes, those things bring some measure of joy and happiness. But it is the gospel that brings the greatest joy to know Christ and to be known by him. Is that what you're known for? Do people know you that that's your great joy? How does this joy come? We'll bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Verse 11 gives us the answer. How does this great joy come? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Who is Christ the Lord. We're told here three titles of Jesus. He is Savior. Who is Messiah. The Lord. Did you know this is the only time in the Bible where you see those three titles put together? Savior, Messiah, Lord. He will he is the Savior because his name will be called Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 121. He is the Christ, the Messiah promised to Israel who will establish his kingdom. And he is most staggeringly of all the Lord. He is God. He is maker of all. He is ruler of all. He is the Savior, the Christ and the Lord. And when the angel had finished preaching the gospel to the shepherds, the angelic choir comes in. We think, right? Doggone it, I think they sang. If I'm reading it, I, I don't know how you can't sing, right? And they said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace on those whom his favor rests. There are two ideas here you need to see in that verse. And don't miss it. We sing it every year. And I think we miss the point of this. There are two things that happen. There is glory to God. And there is peace on earth. It is God's mercy to men. That brings him the highest glory in heaven. He is being merciful to us because he brings peace on the earth. We were at enmity with God. We were in sin because of Adam's sin. We were fallen. The wages of sin was death. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And the heart of man is deceitful and wicked and no man can know it. We deserve death. We are at war with God and we are under the righteous wrath of God. But now in Christ there is peace on earth to those with whom he is well pleased. No more war, no more wrath, no more judgment, no more condemnation, no more guilt for your sin from last week. There is peace, peace. Romans 5, there is peace with our Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is through Christ that we have peace. And it is this peace that God brings through his mercy that gives him the highest glory in heaven. So how do the shepherds respond? 
after they visit Jesus in the manger, we're told that the shepherds teach others what they heard and saw. And as they're teaching it, we're told that Mary treasures it in her heart. And then the shepherds return home to tell others of the glory of God. I'm going to get back to this in just a minute, but I want you to hear those three words. Teaching, treasuring, and telling. Oh, that's what every Christian should be doing with the Christmas story. That's what we should be doing uh, if we're followers of Jesus. We should be teaching the gospel to others, treasuring it in our hearts and telling it to the world. This is what Christians have been doing from the time of the Savior's birth. They have followed this pattern of teaching, treasuring, and telling. This gospel brings good news of great joy. Every word is emphatic to show that the gospel is above all things intended to promote the greatest possible joy in our hearts. Spurgeon said this, there are those who tomorrow at Christmas will pretend to exhibit joy in the remembrance of our Savior's birth, but they will not seek their pleasure in the Savior. They will need many additions to the feast before they can be satisfied. Are you satisfied with Christ alone this season? I think of Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13. As I see the materialism of Christmas and how we all get sucked into it. I think of Jeremiah 2. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters. And they have dug out cisterns for themselves. Broken cisterns that can hold no water. Jesus said in John 15, 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Christmas is meant to fulfill our joy. Santa Claus, or as Peppa Pig calls him, Father Christmas. My son misunderstood that and now calls him Bob the Christmas. Bob the Christmas And the gifts he brings will never bring you lasting joy. The newest tech, the latest gadget, the newest smartphone, the new piece of jewelry will never fill the empty cup of your soul. We are leaky. Our hearts are leaky. That's why you probably can't name three things you received for Christmas last year. The temporary joy of yesterday's gifts eventually fade away and we are left longing for the next year. Find your joy in Christ this season. And Jesus said your joy will be full. I want to get back here really quick to these shepherds. The lowliest of men receiving the highest of theology. It seems God believes high theology should be given to low people. That's why we teach and preach the deep truths of Scripture here without compromise. Now, I don't want to be unnecessarily complicated, but we always assume, and I always assume that when I preach, that anyone, regardless of background, is capable of understanding deep truth. That doesn't mean that preachers should try to impress with complexity. The angels here use plain speech to convey deep truth, and that's what preaching should do, especially for poor and despised People. That's why I can tell my three-year-old son that Jesus is God and became man and died on the cross to save us from our sins. It is plain speech but radically deep theology for a three-year-old and he can get it. And God decided that the first people to hear this good news were poor, despised 
shepherds. It seems that throughout scripture, it is often the poor who are the first to hear the gospel. And often they are the quickest to receive it. I love what Pastor Tabidi Onyabwile says. Nothing about poverty prevents people from knowing God well. Nothing about poverty prevents people from knowing God well. Luke is using this entire story to show us that Jesus has come to turn the political world on its head. You see, while Herod rules from his lofty throne, this newborn king takes his humble throne in an animal feeding trough and flips the world on its head. The gospel is first announced not to the rich, but to the poor. And what we see is that the poor receive it, not the educated, not the powerful, not the rich. This is a powerful word for materialistic Americans, especially at Christmas time. And I want you to hear what Pastor J.C. Ryle said. A man lived 150 years ago, wrote this. Let us beware of despising the poor because of their poverty. Their condition is one which the Son of God has sanctified and honored by taking it voluntarily on Himself. God is no respecter of people. He looks at the hearts of men and not at their incomes. Let us never be ashamed of the affliction of poverty if God thinks fit to lay it upon us. To be godless and covetous is disgraceful, but it is no disgrace to be poor. A lowly dwelling place and coarse food and a hard bed are not pleasing to flesh and blood. But they are the portion which the Lord Jesus himself willingly accepted from the day of his entrance into the world. Wealth ruins far more souls than poverty. When the love of money begins to creep over us, let us think of the manger at Bethlehem and of him who was laid in it. Such thoughts may deliver us from much harm. If you are poor this morning. And I'm not really talking about your financial situation. If you're poor in spirit, if this is a tough season for you, if you are poor emotionally, spiritually, physically, financially, this gospel is especially for you. Verse 15 says, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying they had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. I cannot imagine life being normal after this. Can you? 
One night you're out in the field with sheep. The next moment an angel is telling you that the Son of God has been born. You're the first person in history to ever know about it. How do you go back to work the next day, right? They're telling people. They're sharing it. And they're glorifying God. And they're praising God. This leads to worship in the shepherds. And it leads to treasuring in Mary's heart. Oh, I pray that when we hear the gospel, we would not be so familiar with it that it no longer is a treasure to us. Do you treasure the gospel this morning? Treasure it. And don't just treasure it, but tell it to others. Teach it to others. Teach it to your children. Teach it to your grandchildren. Tell it. Tell this gospel. Go tell it on the mountain. Go, go tell it in the valley, too. Go, go tell it to the poor and go tell it to the rich. Tell it to those who've never heard. Tell it to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation that God will receive much glory and there is peace among men now. I want to read this last verse, verse 21. It says, at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. That word Jesus means God saves. What a perfect name for Jesus, that God saves. What a perfect reminder at Christmas that God saves. There was a monk in the 11th century, his name is St. Bernard of Clairvaux. This morning, Emmett talked about two comings of Christ. St. Bernard actually believed there were three comings of Christ. He says the first coming is in his incarnation when God took on flesh and became a baby. The third coming is when God will come back, when Christ will return and establish his kingdom and judge the world. But there's a coming in between those two. It's the coming of Christ into our hearts. As the song that we just sang, let every heart prepare him room. Do you have room for Jesus today? Has he come in your heart? Has he come into your life? I can't think of a better time at Christmas time to invite you to believe the gospel. That God himself took on human flesh Leaving the glory of heaven. Being born in the likeness of men. The very men that he made himself. Despised him and rejected him and crucified him. Nailing him to a cross. And on that cross the son of God. Bled and bore the wrath of God for sinners. Three days later he would be raised from the dead. Vindicating God's righteousness. And telling the world that he has conquered death. And sin in the grave. And now commands everyone everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. Have you turned from your sin? Have you believed in Jesus today? Has he come into your life? I would urge you this morning, do not leave and do not celebrate another moment of Christmas without receiving the Christ child. Believe in him. Treasure him. Trust in him. And he will save you. Jesus saves. This is what Christmas is about. This is what we celebrate. And like the shepherds, we treasure it, we tell it, and we sing about it. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would save us from over-familiarity and make the gospel fresh today as we hear it again. We need to hear the gospel again over and over and over. 
Father, remind us of our sin and remind us of the great Savior who took on human flesh to save us. Father, help us today to treasure this gospel in our hearts above all things. And give us boldness to teach it and to tell it to the world. Father, as we worship you now and as we sing, I pray that the great joy in our hearts would be expressed out of our mouths. And that we would sing with great joy today. Father, if there's someone in this room who's not a Christian, it might be a child, it might be an adult. Father, would you save them by your mercy? Would you bring them to repentance and faith in Jesus? But God, above all, would you be glorified? The Son of God came into the world that you would be glorified. Glory to God in the highest. We want to give you glory today. Help us to worship you in the spirit and truth and treasure Christ in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.